0: everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and you know what time it is. That's right, it's your midweek Bible study time 2023 spring edition. It is Wednesday, April 12th. Today we're going to study 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 12, and we're going to talk about God's people and their relationships. In today's study, Peter continues to talk about being subject to authority by including personal leadership. There's a lot we're going to talk about today, so before we do, would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this incredible journey through your word once again. First, Peter. Lord, we're in chapter three, and we want to learn more about what it takes to be in submission to you, what it means to be in submission to the authorities over us in this world. Lord, thank you for all the insight thus far and what is yet to come today. And for all that have come today, I pray your blessing over them in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles or Bible apps to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7 to start off. And this is where we're going to talk about the next two people groups that Peter addresses regarding authority in those relationships. And they are wives and husbands. Let's start with verse 1. It reads, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, Even if some of you refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Awesome. Let's take a look at the first two verses right off the bat. Read with me again. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Here's our first question today. Biblical marital submission of the wife to the husband is often misunderstood. Why is that? And what is Peter's perspective on submission in these opening verses? Let me share with you a little word background before I get into my answer. Right off the bat, the opening phrase in the same way, which is the Greek word homoios, it means also likewise, is most likely referring to chapter 2, verse 13, which said, accept all authority. The Greek word homoios has a slightly different slant than the Greek word translated. In other word for translating the phrase in the same way. If Peter had used the word kathos, he would have meant that wives should serve their husbands in the same way that slaves serve their master. But the word homoios focuses on a comparison in other areas. While wives are to serve their husbands in the same way as slaves, Peter was not saying that wives were slaves. Instead, the wives' service, should have positive motives. For instance, in chapter two, verse 13, it says, for the Lord's sake, that's why we do this. And it should be consistent, no matter what the attitude of the one in authority. Again, in chapter two, verse 18, it referred to even if they are harsh, talking about the slave and master relationship. Christian wives were to accept the authority of their husbands in obedience to Christ, to keep harmony in the family and to encourage unbelieving husbands to believe. Submission of the wife to the husband is an often misunderstood concept, although it's taught in several places in the New Testament. I went back to check for you. I found it in Ephesians 5.24, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 5. It may be the least popular Christian teaching in society. These texts don't teach the general subjugation of all women under all men. The principle of submission does not, I repeat, does not require a woman to become a doormat. When a Christian wife interacted with an unbelieving husband, she needed to be submissive according to cultural norms in order to save her marriage and sometimes even her life. But she should not participate in her husband's pagan religion or submit to actions that dishonored God. That's consistent from last week. But when both wife and husband were Christians, the wife should respect the God-given authority of her husband while the husband exercised his authority in a loving and gentle manner there's the blueprint. For marriage and family relationships to run smoothly, friends, there's got to be one appointed leader, and God has appointed the husband and father. The wife should willingly follow her husband's leadership in Christ, acknowledging that this is his responsibility. Now, submission does not mean blind obedience, nor does it mean inferiority. A wife who accepts her husband's authority is accepting the relationship that God has designed and giving her husband leadership and responsibility. In the first century, when a man became a Christian, he would usually bring his whole family into the church with him, like the Philippian jailer did in Acts chapter 16. By contrast, a woman who became a Christian usually came into the church alone. Under Roman law, the husband and father had absolute authority over all members of his household, including his wife. A wife who demanded her rights as a free woman in Christ could endanger her marriage or her life if the husband disapproved. Instead, she should live her new faith through pure and reverent behavior. That's what the verse said. Peter reassured Christian women who were married to unbelievers that they need not preach to their husbands. Their husbands would see their godly lives. At the very least, the men would then allow these wives to continue practicing their faith. At best, their husbands would become Christians too. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with a beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which is so precious to God. Here's the question. This passage is teaching that women should not count on their beauty coming from the outward things. What should their beauty come from, and do these verses mean that women should neglect their outward appearance? Just like today, in Peter's time, society's focus was on outward beauty. People achieved that beauty with fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, and beautiful clothes. But Peter contrasted putting beautiful things on the outside to make one beautiful with revealing the natural inner beauty that a Christian woman should have because of Christ. Now this passage is not saying that women can't braid their hair or wear gold jewelry or nice clothes. In fact, Paul wrote almost the exact words to the women in the Ephesian church. What Peter is saying, though, is that Christian women should not be obsessed by fashion or overly concerned with their outward appearance. On the other hand, neither should they be so unconcerned that they don't bother to take care of themselves. Do you see what I'm saying? Beauty and adornments have their place, but they must be kept in proper perspective. Christian women should let their beauty come from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to the Lord, the verse says. Their beauty should come from their personality and their attitudes, thoughts, and motivations that are revealed in their words and actions. For believers, this inner self has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, as a side note, do you see in verse four the words gentle and quiet? To be gentle means showing humility, consideration of others, and not insisting on one's own rights, not being pushy or overly assertive. And then there's the word quiet. To be quiet refers to the same attitude as that described as gentle, also focusing on not causing dissensions with inappropriate words or gossip. Next up, verses 5 and 6, they read, This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful, They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Here's the question. In these verses, what does Peter say were the reasons that the women of the past were holy and beautiful? The women were holy and beautiful not because they lived perfect lives and had perfect looks but because they trusted God. That's why they were holy and beautiful. Solomon spoke of this in Proverbs 31:30, 30, where he said, Charm is deceptive and beauty does not last, but a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. These women trusted in God and knew how to submit to the authority God has established by accepting the authority of their husbands. But why do you think Peter used Abraham's wife, Sarah, as an example of this? As Peter wrote in verse 6, Sarah obeyed her husband and called him her master. Here he commended her attitude of obedience, hanging his argument on Sarah's use of the word master. Sarah's submission certainly wasn't slavish. She insisted that Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham's other wife and first son, be sent away. Abraham didn't like it, but he went along with her request. And apparently God approved of Sarah's request, as supported by his answer to Abraham in Genesis 21, verses 10 and 12, where he said to Abraham, do just as Sarah says. But I also think that Peter used Sarah as an example because Sarah was considered the mother of God's people as Abraham was the father according to God's promises in Genesis 12. Not only was Sarah an example to be followed because of her faithfulness to God and to her husband, but also because she was the mother of all believers under the old covenant, the mother of the Jewish nation, under the new covenant, the mother of all who believe. Peter saw Christian women as true daughters of Sarah and so true daughters of God. So they should do what's right without fear of what their husbands might do. A Christian woman's faith in God would help her to not be afraid. In context, this could refer to them not fearing the physical harm that might come to them from their husbands or not fearing what might happen if they had to disobey their husbands because their husbands asked them to do something that was wrong or evil. It could also refer to the theme of persecution throughout this letter, recommending that these women not be afraid of anything that might come upon them or their families. But in this context, their fear and hope in God allowed them both to revere and not fear their husbands. Now in the next verse, verse 7, Peter directs his guidance to husbands. He says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. The question is, in this verse, Peter tells husbands they should act a certain way towards their wives. How should they act and why? Just as wives were to accept authority, so the husbands, in the same way, were to give honor to their wives. That a husband should treat his wife with understanding implies more than just a kind attitude, folks. It's deeper than that. It implies that his consideration of his wife is based on his knowledge of her needs, desires, gifts, and abilities. A husband who acts on his knowledge of his wife will greatly enrich her life as well as his own. This was the explicit message Paul also gave to the Ephesians. While the wife may be weaker than the husband, she is his equal partner. In this context, being weaker refers to physical weakness, not to moral, spiritual, or intellectual weakness. Peter didn't use the term to diminish women, but to build a case for respecting them. The men were not to bully their wives physically or sexually. Women had less authority in marriage, so the husbands were encouraged to use their authority with respect for their wives. Their authority was not an excuse to abuse their power. Peter also said that women were a partner, meaning that they were side by side in relationship working together. A man who respects his wife will protect, honor, and help her. He'll stay with her. He will respect her opinions, listen to her advice, be considerate of her needs, and relate to her both privately and publicly with love, courtesy, insight, and tact. Candidly, there are some women who have a difficult time with this biblical assertion that they are weaker and that they are to submit to their husbands. But these women need to remember that they are equal with men in God's eyes. Even though God gave husbands authority in the marriage and family, wives are equal to their husbands in spiritual privileges and eternal relationships. Both men and women who are believers are partners in God's gift of new life. In other words, eternal life. If husbands are not considerate and respectful to their wives, their prayers are not going to be heard. We overlook that quite often, but read the verse again. If men use their position to mistreat their wives, their relationship with God is going to suffer. A man should not expect to have a vital ministry in life or prayer if he is mistreating his wife in any way. Next, let's talk about the third group of people who are under authority, and that is all Christians. For this, we're going to read verses 8 through 12, the remaining part of our scripture today. Follow along. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God's called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Verse eight, here's the question. In starting this verse, it says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Here's the question. In starting this verse with the word finally, Peter lists five building blocks for Christian unity. What are they and what do they mean? The first one is be of one mind. Do you see that? This refers to working together for the common goal of spreading the gospel and having common attitudes and ideas. Just as different musical notes form chords to make beautiful harmonies, so different people can live and work together for God. The second building block is sympathizing with others. This means that you're willing to share in others' needs and being responsive to their feelings, having sensitivity and compassion. The third building block is loving each other. This means loving fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Greek word is Philadelphia, referring not only to family love, but to the special love that should draw all Christians together. The fourth building block for Christian unity is to be tender-hearted. To have tender hearts means to be conscious of others, but includes a drive to alleviate the need in some way. Believers ought to be deeply touched and moved by the hurts, pains, needs, and joys of fellow believers, and then act in a way to help them. They should be affectionate and sensitive and quick to give emotional support. And lastly, the fifth building block for Christian unity is to keep a humble attitude. This means having an honest estimate of oneself before God. Humility does not negate one's own self-worth or abilities, nor does it inflate them. Instead, a humble Christian can honestly view his or her characteristics and abilities with thankfulness to God. Humble people can encourage one another and rejoice in each other's successes. Next up, verse 9. It says don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do. and He will grant you his blessing. The question is, now Peter describes how Christians should act toward those in a pagan culture. How are Christians then to act? Instead of repaying evil with evil or insult with insult, Peter commands those in Christ to bless or give a blessing. A blessing is a positive statement. For a Christian, it's a request that God would help another person to succeed in some way, that he or she would experience God's favor. Why would you ever do such a thing for someone who has hurt or insulted us? Peter answered that question in 1 Peter 2 verses 21 and 25, which we've talked about previously. We respond with a blessing when given evil because that's what Jesus did for us, and he's the one we follow. We're walking in his steps. Peter adds two ideas here as well. First, as Christians, we are called to this work of giving blessings in exchange for evil and insults. That's part of our purpose as God set apart people on earth. This is a powerful tool for social change, since only forgiveness can truly break the cycle of revenge. And second, and more mysteriously, we give blessings for insults and evil, and when we do that, we will obtain or inherit a blessing for ourselves. This blessing may mean the eternal life that we've already been promised in Christ. Or more likely, this blessing points to additional rewards from God in this life and or in the life to come. Verse ten is next, and it says, For the scriptures say, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Here's the question. In this verse, Peter begins to quote from Psalm thirty four. The theme from Psalm thirty four and this letter are similar. What is the theme? And how is it applicable both then and now? In verses 10 through 12 of our scripture today, Peter furthers his case by referencing Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. I would encourage you to take a read of that. David's words from the Old Testament still hold true. Those who want to love life and see good days shall make some very specific choices about how they live today. Is Peter saying that if we live as he is about to describe, we will love our lives and see good days on this side of heaven? Or is he referring only to the promise of good days in the life to come? I think probably both are true to a point. Writing in Psalms, David was making a wisdom statement, a general principle in other words. His claim was that making these particular choices tends to lead to more and better days in this life. Peter affirms David's statement in the context of his own train of thought. Christians who live this way we'll make the most of this life and receive rewards in the life to come. So what choices can we make which will lead to such life-loving good days? It's all about what we as Christians refuse to do and what we insist on doing. First, we refuse to allow ourselves to speak evil or to be deceitful with our words. Peter probably means this is the context of getting even with those who speak evil and lies against us. God calls Christians to take those options off the table, We've got to refuse to use our words to harm, no matter how great the temptation is. Next up, verse 11. It says, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The question is, people's words are connected to their actions. How does this verse support this statement? When believers turn away from evil, their God-honoring speech is then accompanied by doing good. To search for peace means more than simply the absence of conflict. Effective peacemakers must work hard at maintaining peace. They build good relationships knowing that peace is a byproduct of commitment. They anticipate problems and they deal with them before they even happen. When conflicts arise, peacemakers bring them into the open and deal with them before they even grow unmanageable. And now our last verse for today, verse 12. It says, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Our final question today is, here Peter concludes this reference in Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. What is his point? Finally, in this verse, Peter affirms David's statement that God sees all of this. He's watching. He's paying attention. He knows, and he cares about those set apart for his purposes. Specifically, God is paying attention to the righteous. Peter has already made it clear that Jesus, perfectly righteous, paid the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross. Paul adds in Romans 3, 21 through 25, that those who trust in Christ have been made righteous by what he's done for us. So God is paying attention to all Christians, to all who are his people in Jesus. His ears are open to our prayers. He is ready and willing to hear us as we reject the option to repay evil with evil and choose instead to give well. We are to seek peace, but God also notices those who do evil. David's and Peter's words are meant as a comfort. God does not simply ignore the hurtful actions of those who bring suffering to his people. His face is against the evil ones. Justice, as Romans 12:19 says, will come. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our study today, and what an amazing time it was. Let me give you a brief recap. Today, Peter continued teaching about Christian submission to human authorities, now addressing Christian wives. He said that believing wives must be subject to their husbands, even if the husband is not a follower of Christ. By doing so, they might win them the Christ through the example of their own changed lives and hearts. And he also said that Christian husbands must honor their wives. And he finished by saying that all believers must live in unity together and refuse to seek revenge. Next time, we're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 4, the whole chapter, and we're going to talk about what it means to be living for Christ. It's going to be a great study. Until that time, thanks for taking time to join me today. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.